in the 185 quite long and somewhat arduous years that I have been alive, there has never been a proper studio guest here in the Fat Cave. And I'm very pleased to say we'll be popping that cherry next. Dogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia, despite the frigging semiconductor shortage. Website for that, obviously. Or you could just... Up there now, dude. Click it. You know you want to. Graham Gambold is a mechanical engineer and somewhat like me, he graduated way back when they still used gas to illuminate the streets. Remember that. And slide rules to crunch the numbers. Those were the days. He's been a professional rally driver competing in the Asia-Pacific Australian and Vicwegian Rally Championships. So he can certainly drive a car from A to B. There's a long suspension R&D pedigree here as well, including suspension testing and development for Nissan and that was way back when my twin half-brother Phil was recording Separate Lives, One More Night and Susudio. Remember that? 1985 was such a big year for him. Then, of course, G-Squared went on and did essentially the same thing, not the songs, the suspension tuning, for Toyota Australia. And then he moved up the ladder for TMC, where he became the senior test driver for the Lexus Advanced Vehicle Dynamics Group. This is a big deal, right? Like every year in winter, like our winter, TMC would fly a 747 freighter full of prototypes into Sheep Shagistan in the South Island for counter-seasonal R&D in what's now known as the Southern Hemisphere Proving Ground, previously referred to colloquially as Snow Farm. No pressure on that job, right? Just get cars like the V8 and V10 Lexus LFA test mules just right. Like, just do it, dude. Most people don't even know there was a V8 out there in the wings. Anyway... Today, Graham is the chief engineer for the SHPG, the Southern Hemisphere Proving Ground, which basically hosts every vehicle manufacturer on Earth, plus the Tier 1 suppliers, plus tyre manufacturers, for winter testing, and that would be during the Northern Hemisphere's summer. So that's nice and convenient. This facility actually makes year-round winter testing possible globally, right? The SHPG has 16 different test facilities and 500 engineers on site at any given winter's day. It's like it's a big deal in R&D. I've been there once with Pirelli and I can tell you firsthand that it is an incredible place. Like, Dude, if only there were a country sort of nearby, but really, really flat and really, really dry and really, really hot, where a smart entrepreneurial dude could set up a hot weather test facility for usage in this way during the Northern Hemisphere's winter. Wouldn't that be nice? The DPPG, Dingo Piss Proving Ground. <laughs> that would make Australia less shit. A man can dream, anyway. When he's not chief engineering the SHPG, Graham Gambold takes Virgin Kia vehicles from South Korea and he tunes the crap out of the suspensions for our uniquely shit 
Australian roads, and he's been doing that for more than a decade. If you remember what Peter Schreyer did for Kia several years ago, like he's the bold Bavarian dude, the former Audi designer responsible for the TT, whom Kia poached in 2006 to write that ship stylistically for them, most people in the game would know of Peter Schreyer, okay? He's a bit of a design legend. And I look at it like this. Graham Gambold is the dude who makes those Kia vehicles drive in line with the way they look now, in Australia at least. And that's no small achievement in my book. If you own a Kia Stinger or a Serato GT or a car of that ilk and you've tipped it in hard once or twice and enjoyed doing so, you've got G-squared directly to thank for that. He has forgotten more than you and I will ever know about vehicle dynamics, and it is a dead set pleasure to have him here in the Fat Cave today. I can't think of a better first in-cave studio guest. So Graham, welcome to the Fat Cave. You are my first in-studio guest here. It's a pretty awesome experience coming in here. Well, that's With, what you say now. And the automatic tree removal coming into the cave, I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> a dirt track leading in. Exactly. Fantastic. Deep beneath stately Shadow Shitsville, as I say. Okay, so you are the suspension guru, in my mind at least, and you've done a lot of this stuff. And basically, you've spent decades figuring out bump and rebound and all of that sort of stuff, a lot of it specifically for Australian conditions, right? So, what is it about Australia that makes suspension specificity, suspension tuning specificity, so important? Is it our crap roads or the buyers of the cars or both? Bit of both, but primarily our crap roads. So and, exactly uh, how are they crap compared with, say, South Korea, Japan, Europe, America, China, the big markets? It's, um, I mean, that's a very technical question. You can go on for hours talking about why and how, but fundamentally we use spray seal surfaces, a lot of spray seal surfaces, which is just basically a dirt road covered with a bitumen painted coated surface if mm -hmm. you like um, and that gives us gives us what we call a high rms which is the road roughness measurement and then they break up with our heavy trucks so we've got a big american truck network here you know um everything like, arrives by trucks right everything it's arrives by trucks and distribution facilities out in the yep. west of sydney and etc i mean yeah. one of the roads we use here in sydney or north of sydney here is um a major quarry route for building sydney i guess yeah so those trucks give the roads up there a real hammering. And the, you know, the local authorities resurface the roads probably every 12 months. But that's something that you don't see in a lot of parts of the world in sophisticated markets. So Australia's a sophisticated market. They want to drive good, confident, you know, well-balanced cars that have got a good quality feel and a good accuracy on the road. And to do that on rough roads is a challenge. Is there an excuse for the crapness of our roads, such as, for example, where the population of 26 million people, but a landmass that's kind of the size of North America? Is that part of it? Well, the fact is we don't have a lot of roads here in Australia. So for people to travel around, it's, you know, the density of the road network is all east born, all east coast. Seaboard stuff. Seaboard stuff. So um, those roads get a get a hammering so pretty high traffic volume on the roads that we've got and their large geographic mass or you know, distances so got to build them cheaply and um, 
they get damaged. Okay, so talk to me about people buying cars and their expectations as well, because I get the feeling like there are some segments of the market that are really attuned to suspension performance, like if you're buying a Stinger. Okay, and I, I'll use Kia as an example because mm. you do a lot of consulting work for Kia, setting those cars up. If you buy a Kia Stinger, you care about its dynamic performance because it's that kind of car. If you buy a Carnival, hasn't it just got to be good enough? Probably for the punter who buys it, that's the expectation or that's the thinking. They probably don't think a lot about vehicle dynamic performance in their marketing and you know, purchasing decisions. But from our point of view... We've got to make sure that the car's fundamentally safe, stable and dynamic and a good driving experience and not be so reliant on driving aids like you know, Lane Keep Assist and EAB and all those things, AB. So we put a lot of, uh, a lot of effort into tuning the fundamental dynamics to make sure the car's safe and isn't going to have a crash. You know, it's almost like a passive safety and, and a passive comfort. Well, there's a lot behind you as the driver and like you haven't had a million hours of driver training and all of that stuff. If you're just an average driver and you get in a car, you think, oh, I want to go around this bend and you just want the car to do it. You don't want it to complain, right? And you don't want it to have any nasty feedback effects. So how hard is it actually to get a car to that point where you think going around this right-hand bend and it just does that instinctively? Well, that's all vehicle dynamics, and the car's got to be able to have a self-driving capacity, basically. I mean, one of the things that annoys me a little bit about Australia is our lack of driver education. And uh, even though the motor industry is doing a huge amount to improve vehicle safety, we're not doing much to improve driving capability. Well, it's a three-part equation, isn't it? It's the, it's the drivers, the road users, yep. inclusive of pedestrians and their behaviour. You know, if you're crossing the road like this, yeah, then you exactly. are opening the door a bit and you're a road user as well. But there's the road users and then there's the vehicles and then there's the roads themselves and they all have to work together, right? Yeah, well, we talk about three elements to having an accident. One is the equity of the road conditions yep so road quality and the road layout and design the others the driving skill of the operator and the third is the vehicle in its dynamic performance and its level of automation now as motor engineers we can't do much about driver training and we can't do much about road construction and maintenance but we can do a lot about the vehicle and we're doing a hell of a lot technology is doing a hell of a lot to advance cars in terms of electronic safety aids and all that sort of thing but my job and my industry's job is to make sure that the car's fundamentally, you know, the, the, the moving mass, the 1,500 kilogram, 100 kilometre per hour moving mass that is a car on the, on the road, that it's safe and capable of doing it. And we try and get it to the point where it's got a high level of self-driving. So things like the polar moment of inertia control, your, your response, your acceleration, all those things are things that we're looking at all the time when we're talking about the tuning of the car. Okay, so we're both proper propeller. Oh, you're a proper propeller head and I'm a pretend propeller head. Polar moment of inertia is how hard it is for something to do that in space, right? Yeah. Like how hard it is to start and stop rotating. Yep. It's like having a dozen eggs, take eight eggs away and put two eggs here and two eggs here. That's a high polar moment of inertia situation and the two eggs here and two eggs here that's low polymer, yeah. right? So this response is kind of important, right? Absolutely. And, and it's a balancing act, okay? Because Absolutely. 
if you've got high speed stability if the eggs are here but it's hard to turn well right? and the, the thing like a the different type of vehicle or a different size vehicle you've got all you've got your eight eggs up this end and one up here yeah or if you've got a it's not the eggs it's a carnival you can have 800 kilos of people in it mm. and two tons behind yep. and you've got to have control at the same time as if you've only got some schmo in the front and the vehicle's completely empty yeah that's right, right. so there's a huge dynamic sort of mass variations yep. in vehicles and like electronics that. like electronic stability control and um your inertia control and all that sort of thing they're great but they're all reactive systems so something's got to go wrong be first, an right? acceleration yeah. around the polar moment before those actions will be, you know, in, will intervene. Okay, so when so you we're trying to set up the passive dynamics, which is control the acceleration and not let it get to a trigger point. Yeah, and when you say acceleration, you don't mean acceleration no, like most line. people think yeah. on a drag strip. You no. mean rotation. Yeah, and your all of acceleration that stuff. mainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, rotational yeah. stuff. Okay, so car comes out of the factory or prototype comes out of a factory and it comes here and a lot of those things are already locked in like all the suspension geometry the points where the arms bolt into the body yep. and all of that stuff locked in so you can't tweak that you've got things like dampers and springs and bushes that you can tweak maybe tires as well in some cases i don't know but what do you do so we start by getting the design information, all that stuff you talk about, all what we call the hard point engineering, yep. or kinematics, yep. which is the skeleton of the car, if you like. Uh, we get all that design information down from, in Kia's case, from Korea. Uh, and then we put that into a, uh, a simulator or a calculator. And we look at things like uh, your rates, uh, uh, mass frequencies you know, okay so your is your is this rotation, is rotation left and right yeah. yeah and that's influenced by mass front and rear so we look at uh, roll center heights roll moments center of gravity I and mean, then we can do a calculation on all the um, okay so the center of mass because not everyone's a propeller head yep. center of gravity center of mass that's where you can assume all the mass is concentrated yep. in a thing yep and the roll center is the roll where centers it, where it are, the, a bit. are the levers, if you like, down yeah. in the suspension, both yeah. front and rear. So the front axle assembly's got a roll center, yeah. a roll center height, and it's got a center of gravity height. Even yeah. though it's the center of gravity, or well, the whole mass is in the center of the car, at the front and rear axle, it is a proportion of that weight is above the, yeah. the roll axis. Okay, so you've we got call that the roll okay. axis. So you've got this, right? Yeah. You, you've got the roll center here. Yeah, which is where all your suspension points come in and yeah. pivot. Yeah, and pivot the car and the car's, car. car's this way, yep. right? Yep. So let's let's assume this is the front. Yep. Okay. The roll center's down here, yep. right? And then your and the mass, mass center's up here. Up here. So that's when you right. go around a corner, that's right. That happens. Yep. That's what you're talking about. Yep. So we look to control that rate of change with damping. Yep. And we give and on the outside of the corner we'll give compression damping and on the inside we'll give rebound damping and the stabiliser spring to connect the two axles, two sides of the car together yep. and we'll control that rate of movement. You mean anti-roll bar? Anti-roll bar, yep, yeah. yep. So we control that rate of movement with dampers. Uh -huh. But the dampers don't control the actual total amount of movement. So then we do frequency calculations and we do um, vertical ride comfort or what we call vertical frequency which is the mass over the width of the car the yep. track width of the car when it does this yeah just for vertical that. movement yeah. yep and then we do um, a single what we call single wheel or roll frequency calculation and we look to maximize that roll frequency 
in the car across, so make the car stiff laterally, mm -hmm. and then keep the vertical frequency quite low. Because this is one of the things that always amazes me about cars, all right, because you've got roll performance that you just talked about, and you've got vertical performance, like bump and droop performance. Yep. And you've got, essentially, with the exception of anti-roll bars, you've got the same components controlling both of those aspects of kinematic movement, mm. which is pretty complex because you could get one right at the expense of the other. Well, they always are working together. So, yeah, if you rob Peter, you've got to pay Paul. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know if you make the thing vertically stiff, it's difficult. You, you're going to lose lateral stiffness too. So there's certain things you can do to... Um, address that balance yep. and head in a certain direction, but you can't have total modal separation, which they do in Formula One and the like. Formula One's got, you know, it, it has total separation of all its motion frequencies. Yeah, sure. We can't do that in road cars. They don't have... Because you've only got that limited capacity of those we've got four crossover components. Yeah, you've that. got crossover yeah. components, components doing two right. jobs, yeah. right? Yep. And they're probably better at one job than the other. Yeah. They and certainly are in EVs. Right, because if you drive an EV, like uh, I spent nearly a year driving a Kona electric, okay, and it's really stiff in roll, yep, and okay in bump, yeah, because of all that mass down yeah, here, you got it's a lot changed of mass. the performance, yeah. yeah. And the EVs are completely different kettle of fish. We'll get to that in a minute. Yep. Now, uh, what is the process though? And you do these calculations, let's go back to when you stop doing calculations and you actually start going out and playing with the hardware. What do you do? Because you probably don't play with it. You, there's probably a process. Yeah, so typically we set up a model. Mm -hmm. So we've done all our kinematic, kinematic reviews. We've got all our components. We know what spring rates we want to start with. We know what stabiliser bar rates we want to start with. We even have very accurate now um, damper prediction mm -hmm. models. So um, during COVID, it's a bit of a different process. Normally we would bet. go to Korea or go overseas and work with the suspension engineers to do some fast tuning at one of the proving grounds and, and get to a get to a starting point for a localization program. All right, so this is this is like your baseline for Australia. Yeah. Where you think we need to be. Yeah. yeah. But of course going to a foreign proving ground, it's there's no Australian roads there. Yeah. Right. So we've got to uh, you know, make some make some calculated guesses if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, typically we would then come back and start a tuning process. But under COVID we can't do that. So we're going straight from paper and prediction. To getting hard parts made right so we're getting uh, shock special shock absorbers sent out prototype shock absorbers sent out and then we put them in the car and we physically go for a drive and that's the subjective evaluation side of the business okay so there's that sounds to me like a tremendously iterative process like you where could you stop you could put thousands of different combinations of valving for yeah. shock absorbers with dozens of different combinations of spring rates and uh, where does it end? I mean, so how do you do this in a directed way so that you arrive uh, with the fewest number of permutations at the Goldilocks setting? It all starts back with the kinematic paperwork. We've got to get those models as accurate as we can. Yep. And with an accurate model, you'll end up not having too many steps in the process of subjective evaluation. Typically, We'll tune and try probably 10 shock absorber combinations in our process. Yep. Um, and pretty quickly arrive at, at the ones that we want. Um, like I say, during COVID, it's a bit difficult because we're actually getting stuff sent out from Korea, whereas normally we'd have an engineer here working with us and making our own dampers um, and, and tuning our own what we call MDPS 
software maps for yep. the steering. Um, but at the moment, we're we're doing all that by correspondence, so it slows the process down a bit. But the net result and the end result is about the same. It's just much much slower during our COVID program. So what is but the difference then between a car like a Stinger, which is a grand touring car by any estimation, it's yep. a good grand touring car, and Kia Carnival? Because you're looking for the Goldilocks tuning response, like there's a target, but they're different targets. So how do you define the difference in the target? Comes back to damping ratios. So our primary, the primary data that we put into our kinematic model one of the one of the primary data inputs is the desired damping ratio, which is the fundamental stiffness of the shock absorbers and the motion frequencies of the car. So on something like Stinger, we'd run, you know, a front vertical spring rate of 1.3 hertz, whereas on something like a Carnival, we'd be down at 1.2 hertz. So, which is about eight percent different, or something. Something like that, yeah. So fundamentally, mechanically, the car's softer in its kinematic motions. Because you think they're chalk and cheese, but you're only talking about an, yeah, a numerically an eight percent difference. Yeah, they're and, not and that different. It's a weird thing, right? I've always oddly enjoyed driving a carnival, and I want to hate it because it's a people mover, and I always enjoy it, you know. And it always feels kind of instinctive to drive it. It's oddly nice to drive a carnival, and. I don't want it to be that nice. So you're, I, I blame you for this, this, <laughs> this sort of paradox in my head. Well, thank you, but um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, all, it's all the result of the figures. You know, we put the figures in and we want all the cars to be similar. I mean, we don't have a, a much looser tolerance for you know, double lane change stability or something from a Stinger to a, to a Carnival. That's all defined. But, you know, the actual performance difference is a little bit the tuning terms of those frequency variations sports versus luxury because this is one of the things i think ordinary people don't appreciate is that and particularly people who think oh i'm going to modify my car i'm going to put these stiffer springs in and it'll be better you can engineer in these horrible sort of tipping points where you, you don't even realize there's one out there waiting until you're on a bit of a greasy road and you have to swerve around a kangaroo or something right so what you're trying to do, in, in addition to make it feel nice to drive the kids to the shops or something or school, is make the car stable in extremis when you might otherwise wrap it around a pole or a tree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's like, this is pretty serious stuff, right? It is, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a big part of our tuning process. You know, like if a car's got a lot of ESP activation in normal driving, um, one, it can be the driver inputs, but two, it can be the passive suspension tune not controlling the motion of the you know the weight motions and and not behaving naturally you know, with, with high levels of stability so yeah so what you're saying is more the, the more you get your end of the deal right yeah the, the less there is the chance for activation of those systems that are really just there to save your neck when something goes wrong yeah because all those all those systems all those electronic systems are triggered by our, our logarithmic targets so sure. tables so yeah. if the if the ESP system sees a um, lateral acceleration climbing at so many degrees per second, then um, or so many you know um, meters per second, it'll trigger the act, trigger the ESP to come on. Yeah, because it's it, it's not <laughs> it's not like you like it can't see the corner that you're driving. No, at, no, no. But it's it can, doing a prediction. It can see 
the steering angle and the yep. yaw rate of the That's car right. and yep. it can look at what's happened in the past and go, oh, no, this is about to go Chernobyl on us here. Yeah. Better intervene now. Yeah, because right? it's got a predefined map. table, map, yeah. that yeah. it's got to activate on. If, it, if, the, if the acceleration spike goes outside, it'll activate. So our job is to make sure that those accelerations and those body motions are all in check so what's mechanically. It, yeah, okay. So what's easier to get right is it easier to get a stinger right or is it easier to get a carnival right? Oh, that's a difficult question. Because um, there's so much more variability with carnival, right? There's, yeah, but the, there's the towing capacity, the 800 kilos of people, the 200 kilos of luggage in the back or, or dead empty. That's got to be a fundamental difference. It is, but then something like a stinger gets great scrutiny from you guys. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, we've got to make sure that stingers, you know... How do you the feel good. about that scrutiny? I've got to ask you, Is how much of it do you think is uh, is unwarranted or even uh, a poor conclusion based on the, the product? Without naming people specifically, just do you think a lot of the criticism is on the money or do you think a lot of the criticism could be off the target? Uh, look, I always read press and media critique and try and read between the lines because for two reasons. One is that all you media guys are very current with all of the market's offerings. So if, we've, if you make a strong criticism of one of our cars, it sort of almost infers that we've missed something or we're not on the right page. So you know, we do take that in and we do review it. Um, so if, if there's strong comment about a particular phenomenon or a particular car's performance, you know, we want to hear it and we hear it from you guys. Um, do we tune for, for media cars or do we tune for the end user? We always tune for the end user. Um, I think the job of reviewers is really to review the car in the context of the person who's going to drive it. Because if you really... Very much, yeah, that's very important. If you're scrutinising the uh, uh, throttle off oversteer characteristics of a carnival, you're probably doing your job as a reviewer poorly, you know? Yeah, but by the same token, a carnival should be stable in that condition because... Um, yeah, but you shouldn't be driving it like that. I no, mean, that, but just... That would be something that's gone wrong. But in a, in a potential accident scenario, just before you're going under the Kenworth truck... Sure. ...during your, your jackknife towing... Yeah, yeah. ...accident... Yeah, absolutely. ...all those accelerations all those dynamic forces are but, there and it's also not so. acceptable just to swerve and avoid a kangaroo you've got to recover yeah that's and right. get back yeah. in your yeah. lane yeah. before yeah. something comes the other yeah. way right or a tree it's one of the reasons i'm a very big fan of um market market review programs like ncap and these things to actually start doing iso double lane change evaluations you know moose tests if you like it's dynamic done, stability dynamic tests. stability so and give us a rating not on how the vehicle's electronics perform post incident but give us a rating of how a vehicle's stability is and safety is to not let you get into the accident in the first place yeah so i'd love to see a uh, an, a double lane change you know in cap assessment Okay, so I just want to take you back to going out on the road. You've done your kinematic modelling. Yep. You've got your ballpark. Here's where we think we are. You've got your test shocks and your spring rates and your bush is fitted to the prototype and you're out there on the road doing it. How much of the assessment of that stuff is as a result of instrumentation that you do on the cars, you know, accelerometers and things of that nature, and how much of it is the seat of your pants and 20, 30 years' worth of experience doing that stuff? 
from my personal point of view, it's very subjective. Right. Because I've done 30 years of data logging and and um, looking at motion frequencies and measuring everything. So Yeah, and if you'd done 30 years of flipping burgers, you'd want to be whipping up a pretty you, mean burger yeah, by now. Yeah, right? and you so. should be able to do it with your eyes closed. So, yeah. you know, I when we drive our cars, I know if we hit a bump, I know what piston frequency I'm looking at. I know what sort of, uh, whether I've got a spring problem or a damper problem. I know if I'm undersprung or oversprung or... Or, or whatever the issue is. So Do you get corroborating data of that or not really? I can, right. but the problem for us is it's very easy to measure stuff in the car, especially these days. You know, and in, our, um, in one of my other businesses, we do a lot of winter testing and that's all done through data logging, yep. know, measuring snow performance and tyre uh, performance on snow. Um, but we don't have the time for this sort of tuning and we don't need to. So we can go out. I mean, we're, by the time we get to tuning... We're almost driving the car like an end user. So we're saying, what's, what's the end user experience? We know that we're... So you go find some crap roads, yeah, not hard. Yeah, we go find some crap roads, not hard. <laughs> you know. And um, we know if we're... We know mechanically from our paperwork that we're in the window. Right. So we know that we haven't got a fundamental imbalance front to rear in vertical or lateral motion frequency or something like that. We know that our damping rates are in our predicted window. So we know that mechanically we're all correct. It's all been ticked off. And how long so does this process take? You know, Kia rings up one day, and you, you're locked into Kia. You do their local mm. development for suspension tuning. They ring up one day, and they go, we've got a new product. How long until you're talking to the press about it just before it goes on sale? Uh, depends on the model. Um, if it's a completely new model, it's a bit longer. If it's a facelift, we're sort of well down the track by the time we start tuning a facelift. Yeah. Um, with a new model, it's typically eight, six to eight months. Um, and it's not so much a phone call. We have a very carefully developed product planning pathway, pro- pathway and project. You know, so we know what's coming almost three years in advance. Yeah, right. So, um, but the process for us in terms of tuning for the local environment starts about six months out. And as I say, normally it would be a week or two at the research centre in Korea working directly with the shock absorber engineers there it was very fast we've got all the dynamometers all the shock shock absorber dynamometers all the spring range all the mechanical components and uh, you know we can do 10 iterations a day if we need to like lego for shock absorbers a bit like lego for shock absorbers um and very quickly get a feel for the vehicle's responsiveness to over and under damping and and all those things and having a proving ground there there's a whole uh, you know plethora of different surfaces and different road conditions we can quickly run across yep so we nut through all that stuff get the car into a zone and then we come back and we do two weeks of subjective evaluation tuning here in sydney or melbourne or wherever we'd like to go yeah right and then the rest of it is obviously them implementing that into production yeah and then we get involved a little bit in the quality validation process to make sure that our prototype shock absorbers can be made and carried into production yeah and that the um you know the force variations in the pre-production versus the post-production samples are all correct you know just sitting here talking to you about this stuff right it it really does make me wonder about and i try not be too hard on them about this but backyarders modifying cars they Mm. They don't have the resources to do this kind of thing. 
It's easy to make a car worse. It, it's very easy to make a car worse. I do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But um, and then you undo it. And then we try and undo it. Yeah. Um, but if you know, if you're a punter, you go and buy one set of springs, right? Or you go and buy one set of dampers, yeah. and then you're kind of at the mercy of the person who's tuned them. Yeah. And this, I think this allegation of making it better might be at the expense of some other aspect of the car's performance that really does matter. Yeah, it's probably not so much that they're actually trying to make it better. They're probably trying to move it from a design intent into a more specific demographic of their user market. You know, make like it better make, on the track or something. Make a Carnival into a Carnival GT or something like that. You know, yeah. Or, your, or, like, so, or make um, a Stinger even better. Or make a Stinger even better. But then if we did that as OEMs and put that to market, would we be alienating the market and not selling as many cars? You know, we, the other, one of the other things we try and do is make the vehicle as um, available and suitable to as wide a market demographic as we can. We well, I guess most people who buy brand new Stinger, the, the majority mode of operation of that car is driving to the office. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't need to be... But it's got to be good at that. Yeah. Right? It's, it's got to be good at that, but it's got to, it, it, can't be, um, it can't be a track special. So we're not trying to make it a track special. It's got to be engaging, but is, is it It's got to be engaging. But it's like okay, so from forgiving. your point of view, is it harder to make a Stinger engaging or harder to make it good to drive to the office? Um... Good question. Um, no less hard, but different paths to take it down. So if the directive from product planning was to make this a track special, mm -hmm. you just go and make it a track special. Change your frequency numbers, give it all, uh, give some high rates. And but it would be awful to drive on but it wouldn't in be traffic. Great to drive in traffic. And those it wouldn't be great three to drive bumps on that are boom, 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 yeah, boom, 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 or yeah. Sydney step joint roads, uh -huh. concrete roads and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we're always trying to find and sting it. And... We were talking earlier, which is easier, Stinger or Carnival? I'd say probably Stinger because uh, it's a more discerning market, but it's also harder to get that balance between you know, 95 percentile dynamic performance users and the day-to-day -day driver. Yeah. Whereas tuning a Carnival, it's uh, even though we do a lot of tuning with it laden and, and semi-laden condition to simulate an end user's typical daily drive it's an easier thing to achieve because the car hasn't got to have this 95 percentile you know track performance so the the frequency numbers are in a more fat part of the zone yeah, if you yeah. like yeah okay so the, the final thing i want to talk to you about is the electrification of the automotive industry right and an aspect of that that never gets a run which is dynamic performance okay what we've seen so far is a whole bunch of evs that are adapted from internal combustion platforms and as i see it that's the elimination of several hundred kilos of mass right up the pointy end and then the addition of several hundred kilos of mass probably a few more hundred kilos of mass just underneath the floor and yep. that's got to be so fundamentally different like out there beyond yeah, well what you've seen before it's not just under the floor it's towards the back under the floor typically because the uh, where the fuel tank was is a great place to put batteries yeah, so 60-40 yeah, as exactly. opposed to 60-40. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's exactly right. We're seeing sort of 60% of the weight at the back of the car, which turns your car into a forklift overnight. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all those things that we were talking about before, 
vertical ride frequencies and and, and well the mass centers down there near the roll center and, now and the so roll center's very low yeah well the roll center's not that low it's about the same but uh, the, the mass centers moved a lot closer yeah, the, to it the roll moments are much shorter yeah so so intrinsically less body roll less, in corners, less body roll but, more but then less forgiving too but more bump and particularly at the back yeah more, more bump vertical at the back. movement yep. in response so to inertial bigger, inputs bigger springs much bigger springs double the spring rates in yeah. electric cars at the rear wow um which means double the damping short roll moments so got to um, make sure that someone overcooking it lifting off doesn't yeah, exactly back off the road. That, that transition between we, we we talk about car in terms of it driving down the road and going straight to going mm. into a corner as two parts is uh, the transient response and yeah. then the settled steady state response in the corner sure and we're looking to always reduce that transient time to a minimum so shorten the transient response and get into the steady settled steady state faster and for it to be nice and compliant and absorption, absorption, absorbing in those rough corners. And I guess coming out of a corner is the same thing and in coming reverse. coming out of the same. Less transient, yep. but you, you, yeah, get, you've got to get, start coming out and yep. then you've got to adopt the straight line Go back attitude. to straight. Yeah. And um, with short roll moments, that becomes a bit more of a knife edge. Yeah, right. you know, those transitions are sharper don't have the time for the shock absorber to bleed through and all those sort of things. So is it going to be easier to tune once we see EV6 and other platform-specific yeah, so, EVs? So that's part of this. Everybody talks about having a, an electric car platform, special platform for electric cars. Everybody's moving to that now, where the electrification of the motor industry has gone through its first phase, which is taking the current production offering and electrifying it to going specific design around battery mass and yeah. roll moment locations. And so all the, the fundamental geometry. Fundamental kinematics the, are changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, uh, EV6 is our first product offer specialised and dedicated electric platform. Um, so a lot of those inherent design compromises in going from an ICE platform, if you like, and yeah. electrifying it have, have been re will be reduced. Still the same challenges, though, you know, controlling a large mass at the rear of the car and all that sort of thing. At I mean, least you won't be dealing with an inherent sort of... Uh, poor uh, set of circumstances like the compression of the the, the reduction in the mass centre height relating to the roll centre. Yep. Presumably that'll be sorted out. Yeah, that'll right? be sorted out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Alright, well but I've detained uh, you for long enough, Graham, and you've uh, just walked up to the knife edge of spilling your guts and saying things that you shouldn't say. And uh, I think that's been very interesting because a lot of people don't appreciate the complexity. Like everything's simple until you do it, right? Heart transplant, simple <laughs> until you do it. And there's a lot of complexity in this. And I guess the proof of the pudding is out there in the driving. And hopefully it'll give uh, the people viewing a chance to think about the work that's gone into the product when they actually get into the cars and drive them. And they do it seemingly without too much argument, you know. Yeah, well, if we've done our job well, people won't know. You know, like if we've got a great confident car, people will just drive it and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, our objective is to work really hard for something that most people probably won't experience. But it'll be on their side the moment they're trying to swerve around a kangaroo or get around that truck that's in yeah. front of them or whatever. Well, for what it's worth, thank you very much for the unsung work that you do because I think it is making a tremendous difference to the product. And uh, I'm... I'm in awe of every conversation I've had with you because it, I'm trying to keep up and it's all, all this binary stuff about frequencies and all of that. Oh, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're going to come into grips with that 
and not me. You're an engineer, so you get it. But um, yeah, there's a difference I'm between not, getting it and doing it, mate. Yeah, I'm not great at talking about all that stuff because it's what I do every day. But it's um, it's difficult to put it across to the to the public. But you're you're the you're the skill there. So we we need people like you in the motoring media to take you know what we do and explain it to people. No, well, I I love your work. Thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks, John. The Harry Potter of suspension tuning there, Graham Gambold. Please excuse the production values too if you did find them a little rough around the edges and hey, I don't know, haven't seen the footage yet. I can tell you this was not my first rodeo interviewing someone, but it's actually not that easy one man banding the whole thing. Like in TV, you'd have a dozen people doing this. Running three cameras and the audio and the lighting, trying to make sure nothing's gonna fall over mid-chat and still figuring out what to ask next. Plus, of course, trying to keep up with a dude who can run rings around you on the subject at hand. There's that. Look at this interview like a test mule, a prototype of sorts which we might be able to finesse into production if there's actually a latent demand in the market for that. To wit, I am wondering if you liked the format or if you thought it had potential, so please do let me know in the comments below. It seems to me there's just a shitload of talent out there in the automotive industry, locally and abroad, and this talent pool kind of exists in a perverse cone of silence, a vacuum of sorts. Nobody wants to talk to a journalist, right? I get the feeling like this talent pool deserves to be much better oxygenated. And pretty clearly, at least I hope, I want you to know that this was not that cheap kind of media blood sport interview. That was not the intent going in. And I hate that, where the objective is simply to trip up some poor bastard for the purposes of entertainment, because the media thrives on that. The news media does anyway. I tried to channel my inner Sam Harris or Joe Rogan with this interview, however imperfectly, and I'm certainly not comparing myself to those giants of podcasting, but I kind of tried to use their philosophical intent, okay? Look, I did it this way, the better to suck worthwhile information out of G-squared's brain and inject it directly into yours. That was the objective here. So hopefully this is what an interview looks like, minus the malicious intent which is so popular in the blood sport mainstream news media. Anyway, if you like this kind of thing, do let me know. I'll try to find some other victims who are brave enough or crazy enough or crazy brave enough to run the gauntlet here in the fat cave with a terrifying geriatric Phil Collins lookalike, such as me. <laughs>